The sponsor of our show today is CNE Wildlife. CNE Wildlife partnered up with North American Deer Talk. We're incredibly grateful for that. If you get a, a chance or an opportunity, say thank you to them. And the reason is really simple. They have 30 years of commitment to all natural probiotics. This commitment's really a passion for them. And they've established that through university research at Texas Tech. Whether that be their fawn paste, their top score product, their show choice, farm pack, all the various products they have, they really provide a service and a set of products that helps your herd thrive. Give Sadie a call over there at CNE and uh, order up some good stuff. We think you'll like it. We know we do. We've been uh, product users for almost 15 years now. Um, we feel it's the best around. So get you some CNE wildlife today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. Today we have Mr. Greg Fleece. Greg, how are you? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing real well, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the show and and uh, walking through the. I, I I I dubbed it on my title here, the Wilderness Whitetails Experience. Um, so I want to get into some of the history because you've been around a long time, and I'm not calling you old, but. Right. You've, been, you've been around a long time and, and you've seen a bunch, you know, not only um, in Wisconsin, but across the country in kind of the, the evolution of the, the deer industry and, and all that that is. Um, give us a little background on your farm when you got started and we'll kind of work through that uh, uh, systematically. Yeah, we started uh, raising deer in 1977. Um, actually had fawn found a fawn on the side of the road that um, mom had been hit by a car and the fawn was just laying there in the ditch and we just raised it and never had a fence or anything for it but uh, kept alive and then eventually we decided you know let's start a little game farm and and uh, I think we bought that first animal at that time you could buy them from the DNR for whatever it was for 25 bucks or something yep. like that and uh, there was a few people in the state of Wisconsin raising deer at the time so once we started with that then we went around and found some deer from various places and just started raising deer you know back then uh, if you had a 130 inch buck you had a good buck and that was your breeder <laughs> buck you might have been three or four years of age and probably an eight or ten pointer yeah. i think it took us a few years to get 10 points we were mostly at eight but yeah we started back it's getting close to what 45 years i guess we're at 45 years right now yeah i was i was gonna say your farm's older than i've been alive so we'll just yeah. we'll, we'll leave we'll leave that there well that's cool um so when you um when you kind of look at that i i think i was looking back and i i know your genetics pretty well or i tried to anyway and i think i think it was like the late 80s um and boomer was like kind of that first like real big popular bnc buck is that about the timeline like 88 yeah, maybe so. yeah late 80s yeah, probably late 80s when the original Boomer was uh, came about. So, so we had Little Boomer probably in the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So so, so when you, um like, how, how did you, like, you know, it's it's obviously a little easier to kind of look back on it now and, and ref, on, re reflect on those things. But, like, when you were kind of going through, like, what was the thought process of, like, saying, hey, we want to raise better deer, but, like, 
there was no resources like there is today. You couldn't like hop on Facebook and be like, oh, I just, there's a great breeder buck over here. I'm going to buy some semen. Like that stuff didn't exist. So like, right. what was it like in that bubble? Like, how did you guys go about doing that? Was it trial and error? Was it an accident? I mean, walk, walk us through that. Cause that's really interesting. I think. Yeah. So what we did, I think we actually just probably were a little bit ahead of our time as far as record keeping. Um, we really kept track of what does were giving us what, bucks and which ones were producing big ones which ones weren't there was no semen i think the last breeder buck we bought was maybe 1982 81 something like that um so we didn't go out and just go find a big buck and buy it and breed a bunch of deer to it um we did you know buy a few deer in the early 80s but mm -hmm. after a while we just started working within our within our herd and uh the various different lines we had you know, started with or bought and had good record keeping. So does were producing well. We kept them and their daughters and sisters and we kept, you know, bucks, you know, that were producing well. If they, you know, kept them around, let them breed a little longer and, and just good record keeping allowed us to probably speed up the process into getting big deer. So, yeah, I mean, started in 77 and at the late 80s, I mean, which is a long time in today's sure. standard, but, you know, back then, a 180s to 200 inch buck was huge and Way huge. that's about where we were people would drive across the country to see those they did yeah yeah for sure i i i you know because there wasn't call it uh and this is this is predating me so like i think it was probably uh, like bucky heavy sundance right 19 those are all 96 babies pa geronimo yeah. might have been in there right and like those deer were unheard of for their day you know by the time they were yeah. all before they were all way into yeah. the 200s right oh, yeah. uh and and i just remember hearing like you talked you, of course we had like animal finders guides right that was like the advertisement of the day and like right dig through and you'd find all sorts of crazy stuff and um you know i remember talking with somebody and they're like yeah i'm driving a thousand miles to go see this deer and i'm just like unreal yeah. right and there was yeah. so much you know you just couldn't send an email everything was like 35 millimeter photos and right maybe you could beg somebody to mail you a copy of some deer or something um i i i uh part of me misses the simpler times sure um, but sure from an information standpoint it is great being able to just pass emails along and send pictures and stuff um i kind of i kind of jumped ahead and and dropped kind of two juggernauts on your on your farm with with bucky and heavy um but I think predating those, it's it's important to kind of discuss, you know, Little Rumor and Pretty Boy because they they really laid a, in my eyes anyway, a, a big foundation um, for your herd. Do you want to kind of run through some of those, you know, sons and the daughters of of some of those real popular bucks then, and kind of where that leads us to today? Yeah, they were, and it was two kind of unrelated bloodlines there. It was Little Boomer, Pretty Boy. Um, I mean, Little Boomer had Poncho and, you know, BJ and a whole bunch of them, Magnum. I mean, there was, a, for some reason, he just produced. He was like a, maybe a 200-inch buck at his tops, but he had a whole lot of sons that were between 200 and 250, say. And then uh, we spread with those, and that's where Bucky and Heavy, and we had an old buck called Louie as well. That's where Heavy came out of. <clears throat> and uh, that whole line was was real strong. And anytime we crossed the Louie line with the uh, pretty boy and 
you know, a little boomer, it just seemed to work. You know, we had the green 36 and Bart and a lot of those older bucks and, and they just produced and their moms always produced. So it, it got us going for sure, you know, and it was, it was in a era where, you know, there wasn't a ton of giant bucks. So all of a sudden you pop a, you know, a bucking a heavy who, you know, hit 300, I think both the same year around 2002, if I remember. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, there was, there was people that would, you know, fly in from Texas just to come see Bucky, you know, and he was in the back of a pen where he'd walk up and you'd just see 34 inches wide and his head, you know, just coming up. It was just, it was impressive. It would be impressive today, you know, yeah, for sure. And, uh, it was, it was really, really impressive back then. So, and that, and that's about right around then 2001, two is when the semen market started taking off and, and then it was, it became a little bit easier. All of a sudden, you go get semen from Bucky or Heavy or Sundance or PA Geronimo, you name it. Um, and there was a whole bunch of bigger bucks in that started coming. It started getting easier. Mm -hmm. But back then, those bucks, they were hard to come by. Yeah, I think the first time I saw Bucky, I think, was 2005. Uh, so he would have been uh, nine. And he was still he was still big. Uh, yeah. he was still, he was still impressive. And I, of course I visited quite a few times after that. And I, I watched him do what big bucks do. They decline over time. But like, I, I always noted that like, when I, when I came up there and, and we should just be specific, you're in Wisconsin, the deer are big, right? Cause you guys have harsh winters. Um, Bucky was an, he was a big animal and, yeah. and like you, I, I remember watching him, you know, cause he'd grow out in the dope pen and, you know, you walk around, he just like stand over those does, like he make them look small and they weren't small does, you know? Right. And, uh, it was always a, it was always a, a neat, neat thing. As I kind of watched, I always enjoyed watching those lines kind of evolve. Um, what do you, what do you think the, you know, like the impact of, let's just say Bucky specifically was on your herd, um, you know, kind of throughout that time. And, you know, you still have stuff out of them today that I'm sure is a really big part of your program. I mean, we're talking 20, 25 years ago, right? Like still today. So what, what was it about him? Yeah. You know, he just, he just produced. And, and I don't know. I mean, we had obviously giant typicals out of them, giant non-typicals out of them. You think of a, a big guy or a Rocky or you name it. Um, heck, I remember that year when I think it was big guy and Rocky and, white 116 and champ i mean there was i think we had like 16 sons out of them and probably 14 or 15 of them were 200 uh you know 300 as two-year-olds you know they were huge for the i'm gonna time. i'm gonna break a rule in the studio so if you're watching on video if you want to see bucky don't mind my office but that right there is the buck we're talking about certainly a a legend in the in the deer world he sits above my office and it's one of my favorite mounts um yeah. just you know like still today like you said it'd still be super impressive um yeah i i remember that year um i was blown away just i, I mean you you named some of them i remember a buck named blackie yeah. um there was like a blackjack obviously big shot was in there i mean it was just endless like there was yeah, Magnum, I think, was another Tre tremendous. Yeah. And yeah. um 
you know, I think that like solidified him into that kind of dear, dear history. Well, and you look at it, even today, you start thinking about it and some of the great deer in Texas, you, know, you look back in pedigree, there's probably a Bucky maybe down there somewhere on the bottom of that, yeah. you know, Bucky daughter, or, you know, there's a lot of it. Um, there's a lot of Bucky semen went down there. Um, a lot of Bucky semen went in the North and our herd. I mean, at one point you could probably say that 60 to 70% of the deer in our herd had Bucky somewhere in the pedigree. That's amazing. Maybe, maybe even more, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, he just, he was a special animal for sure. I think I had, I think our last Bucky daughter, I think maybe left the farm here in the last year or two. Oh, really? Yeah. So wow. we still have them. So, so obviously lots of granddaughters and, you know, yeah, yeah. there's still, still variety there. Um, so, you know, I know for, for you guys, one of the things that, you know, I always enjoyed uh, chatting with you about is, is, you know, your love of the outdoors and, and, and hunting, like your family are all big hunters. And I, I'd like to just kind of hear your, your story of how, you know, you know, you have this, this game farm and, you know, you're raising deer and that kind of transition into the, you know, developing a property or properties um, and, and getting into the, you know, the hunting end of things and how that, how that kind of came to be. Yeah. Well, when my brother and I graduated from college, um, we decided to come back and work in the family business. We also owned a lumber company at the time and, and hunting deer was a lot more fun than sawing lumber. So <laughs> we decided, you know what, let's expand the business. Um, it was a way to, you know, instead of selling our, all our bucks and, and then becoming breeder bucks all over the country, we, you know, we could protect our genetics a little bit and, um, you know, move them into our own hunting ranch. Um, and, you know, it was just another way to just, you know, build a business. And, and we had the land at the time. So we, we fenced in one property and, and uh, started hunting. Um, I actually built an ad, which I'm not very good on a computer, but I built an ad of Bucky walking away um, when he was three years old and put it in the Texas Trophy Hunter. And, and we booked up our entire hunting season off that one ad. <laughs> and, uh, then we started producing more deer and we ended up having to said, well, let's build another property. And we did. And, um, everything just kind of grew from there. You know, it was the demand for our hunts. I mean, we were shooting a lot of world record bucks at the time. I think we've had six or seven different ones, um, a couple not, uh, typical world records um, over the years. Um, so it was just, we kept, the clients were there, the opportunity to grow were, was there. Um, so we just kept growing until we felt, okay, we're, we're satisfied with where we're at. And, but it was my brother and I just love, we do love to hunt. Um, maybe we don't get to hunt as much anymore because yeah. of this, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, if you can, if you make a living and doing something you're passionate about, it was an easy choice for us. Yeah. You may not get to hunt directly, but you're still out there guiding and enjoying the, that experience. Right. You get to be around those, those deer, which is, I, in my opinion, just, just as good almost. Um, so you, you, you build your first property, get that kind of managed. It sounds like there was, there was good growth. Uh, when was that, that first, uh, that first ranch opened? So we did our first hunt in 1999. Yeah. And then, first, uh, that was 207 inch clean, typical, oh, 6 wow. 6, which is beautiful. I mean, that's where we started and, 
So it was pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. And then yeah. you you built a couple other properties then as well. Like you just right. felt like the demand was there and you had the deer and you wanted to expand or Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, like, I mean, we were for a while there, honestly, we were turning away probably 40, 50 guys a year. So it's like, all right, let's uh let's yeah. build another property. Yeah, let's... good problem to have, right? Yeah, I think my you know, my parents when we started the hunting preserve maybe had twenty 25 does that's all we ever bred you know the whole 90s and when my brother and i got into it we started building the hunting preserves and we needed more bucks had, yeah. had to have more does we and we started the expansion mm. really yeah where does the uh, doe number sit at today you know we between in our breeding on our breeding farms probably 120 mm. um then we have some uh, hunting preserves and we have some extra pens that uh, attach those um so we probably do another 80 in there gotcha um, so, so it's like a hundred good yeah. good selection of diverse yeah. genetics and and yeah. uh and uh different kind of management styles for for all those properties yeah and, uh, and you know a fair amount of the deer are bred right in the, the hunting ranches and we've done that a fair amount now now that i've really you know switched over to some genetic uh strategies for cwd i i don't have as much natural breeding in the preserves at this point hmm. but, but we're going to get back to that gotcha um, but yeah we uh for years we depended upon great deer out in our hunting ranch breeding some really good does that we put out there gotcha so you would you would um i guess it sounds like you would just you know you'd use your animals in your breeding operation you'd breed them and say look like we're not selling these to somebody else these are awesome does we're getting tons of production here and maybe like stick them out their bread or, or improve right. those genetics like that. Exactly. So, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, so you build a couple ranches out and I, I think it's a, a nice segue. You had mentioned, you know, doing some, uh, genetic susceptibility breeding. Um, of course, Wisconsin had CWD for the first time and in, in, uh, 2002. And of course that kind of raised the alarm bells for everybody. I, I, I remember that happening and being like what what is this thing you know because we had all just started kind of testing our animals that program was just kind of kicking off nationally for a couple of years um and i guess in 2013 was the first time that you guys got caught up in that and had an animal right. test positive is that right yep that is correct so we we had tested probably I don't know, probably a thousand deer at that point. Um, wow. But we started that one farm and our third farm in about 2004 or five. And we just put a bunch of animals in there and um, then let them kind of go. And then I think it was an animal that was born in about 2008 um, and uh, had lived there for a long time. And all of a sudden just came down positive on that new property. And you know, at that, when that happens, you get a lot of people that do some investigating and epidemiology and all that sort of thing. And they kind of concluded that it probably was on the landscape there. And we just eventually we got it. You know, at that point, we a thousand deer from the breeding farm and the, the hunting ranches that are close to the breeding farm and no positives. But new new farm, you know, and all of a sudden you got you got it. So um, that's yeah it was unfortunate i mean we had we had not bought a deer in probably 
I don't know, 15 years maybe. Yeah. So we didn't bring it in through bringing in deer or doing any of that stuff. It was, you know, could it have came in and and some alfalfa hay or was it something on the landscape? You know, there's you know there's a lot of some different possibilities. Sure. But uh, there's I mean, there's CWD in a in a lot of spots in Wisconsin. You know, free ranging. Um, there's a you know a number of farms that have got caught up in contracting it from that situation i think yeah yeah there's no doubt i i every once in a while i kind of think about like how many people go out west and hunt right and like so pre pre any type of high-risk parts bands right because they're all pretty new and i think about all those elk and mule deer that have come back home on the back of a truck i mean in the tens of thousands hundreds of thousands right out of you know 30 and 40 percent um you know, positive areas for sure. And then they get tossed all over the landscape and the wolves and the coyotes and whatever other predators spread all that stuff around. So there's probably prions all over the place. I would say that there's prions in every County in Wisconsin and plenty of them, yeah. you know, it's just a matter of time. If they, if they tested every animal that was hunted in every County in Wisconsin, I'm sure they'd find it everywhere. Yeah. Um, there. Yeah. I mean, that even the, the four county hot zone in wisconsin i mean there there's a lot of deer running around with cwd today in there mm-hmm. and a lot of those animals for a long time have had it and they've left the area after they were harvested and yeah you know and we all know what happens when you you take care of a carcass and what do you do with the what's left you probably go out and throw it in the woods sure. you know, and, and that's probably one of the easiest ways to spread those prions yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it is good that like, it's getting more public attention, you know, and like yep. you have conservation agencies and, and private associations that are t- at least talking about it and saying, Hey, like there's a, there's a better way. It's not ideal, but we can do better um, with at least the high risk parts anyway. Right. Cause right. that's kind of the low hanging fruit. Like, Hey, if you're going to, yeah. if you're going to, you know, get a deer quartered up, like, don't throw the spinal column out there, just bag it up, put it in the dumpster or burn it or, you know what I mean? Yep. So that's good. Okay. So, so 2013 first positive, I suspect like, like anything else, you know, over the years, you just kind of get a few more, a few more, a few more. And then um, that kinds of brings us more into, you know, 2016, 17. And we now have, some tools that are starting to become available to work with. Um, what was your kind of your first look at some of the, um, you know, the codon markers and yeah. how, how you kind of came about that? Yeah. So I was, uh, I had a client in, in uh, Barry Dyer, his name. Um, so he had done this with elk. He had been breeding for five to 10 years for CWD resistance in elk mm-hmm. that he had in Colorado. And I donated a hunt over to one of the Colorado chapters. He bought it, came and hunted. We started talking CWD. He had worked directly with Nick Haley. And I was at the process. So CWD at that point, we were like three years, four years into, I think it was 2017 he hunted. So we were four years into it. And and I seen the, the disease getting worse in our herd with more and more positives. And my brother and I said, listen, we need to do something about this. We need to figure it out. Um, and uh, so anyway, we uh, we met with Barry. He kind of introduced us to Nick. He was hunting in October. By the end of October, I had already 
I had tested my doe herd and sent in a bunch of semen, found some bucks that had some resistant alleles and, and uh, was going as fast as I could go to get resistant animals. I was a year ahead of everybody else. Gotcha. Um, and um, then once we figured out that there was something there, we, you know, some more people got involved and started doing it. And at the time I only had my own bucks and I just happened to have uh I had an HS buck and a, um, the old sudden impact line of does had a, the K marker, had some S's in there. So I just started working with whatever I had. By the second year, um, then I found a double mark, some double marker bucks and uh, bred a lot of you know those and, and uh, just kept on working. So now we're at the point where probably half our herd, you know, that I'll breed now, is well, the entire herd is single marker at least and probably getting close to the point where half the herd is double marker and within a year or two a couple of years we'll have the entire herd double markers a few years later you know chris seabury's work started becoming available and we started incorporating that into it as well interesting um i'd like to jump back to the um disease aspect a little bit because you had mentioned that you're kind of seeing more and more and i i i I do think it's important to note there that, I mean, you've seen firsthand that like what CWD can do, right? Like there, there is, there are animals that get sick from chronic wasting disease, right? And, and it's, it's not something that is disputable. Um, Are there animals that, you know, live with the disease for multiple years and they, they do fine. I, I suspect so, but it is a disease that animals can and do get sick. Uh, and it's not something we want, right? Like you certainly, you it, just from the, the two minutes they're talking about, you know, going through the, the testing process and genetics, like if you weren't concerned about it, you, you wouldn't have done that. Obviously it's something that we have to do. Um, so I wanted to start with that premise in mind that like, Hey, CWD is a, a real disease. We can, we can debate the merits of the, uh, regulatory environment. That's a separate issue, but the disease itself is something that we as private deer managers, we need to look at and we need to take seriously. Yeah, yeah. for sure. The, the disease is real. I mean, I, you know, it, when I first got hit with it, I didn't believe I had it hmm. because all my animals were really, really healthy and they looked good. And I'm like, we don't have this. So the first year that had it probably te- the tested positive was like a 350 pound. <laughs> yeah. And then I think I shot the SCI world record the next year, typical and 300 some pound buck yeah um he had it you know and i'm like man you know it was kind of a dumb joke but i said this is what cwd does i'm going to give it to all my deer because i mean i was killing giant deer that was world records yeah (laughs) but within a few years though you do you you do start seeing some deer that look a little bit off Um, i guarantee you some deer do die from it um i think when you're looking at the least resistant or most susceptible 96 gg animals it hits them and it hits them quicker hmm. um we were seeing deer that didn't look real good when they were probably two years of age you know and uh i remember one having a really really good group of two-year-olds that were out in one of the hunting ranches i'm like man i can't wait till i'm talking 200 inch typical two-year-olds like man when they get to three they're gonna well when they got to three they weren't looking as good as they did at two I think we lost a few of them. So I think, I mean, the disease is real. At that point, we realize you have to do something. You can't beat the thing, the disease without getting some resistant animals. 
and I mean the resistance and we can talk I'm sure we'll get into that it's it's real and it's working you know and and there's we're on the right track I mean whether we can completely beat this disease I I think that there's a pretty good chance we can but uh that that's the way to go so um when you when you look at those I guess I, I'm not going to interject how how do you like give us the rundown and the playbook of like what you guys are doing. So like from 2017 and until today, like how are you getting animals on the ranch? How are you building this, you know, resistance or, you know, susceptibility, uh, breeding, give give us the whole goals, the whole rundown. So on the property that started positive, what we decided to do there was completely depopulate it. That way there weren't complete control of the genetics. Um, it got to the point at the end, it was probably 70% of the GGs were coming back positive. Oh, wow. So it, was, it was a bad deal. Yeah. We completely depopulated it and uh, restocked it shortly. Um, then uh, in, at this point, every single animal that's being born has a single resistant allele at minimum, an H, S, or a K. Um, so we, uh, you know, we... We'll put in bred does in those properties, but they're always bred to double marker bucks. Um, we'll cull quickly. We At this point, I'm not having deer that are being bred out there because I, it could be a, a KG breeding a GS, let's say, and then you end up with a GG. Right. So I'm I'm in complete control of our herd right now where I've, I've eliminated the possibility of a GG being born. Now, we've got one last i'm doing i've got four properties i hunt so i started with the, the one that got bad first i went to our our next property and i kind of went to that same i didn't go to complete depopulation on any of the other ones but i'm in the process of eliminating every gg which is obviously we as we know the worst uh um, animal so we've we've got to that where we're gonna this year and, and maybe there'll be a few stragglers next year that'll need to be eliminated but then uh our breeding I mean, at the time, like I said, there wasn't a lot of options, but I happened to have some good ones that had some markers and we bred with it. I, I took a gamble on a buck I didn't know because his mom had an H and he lucked out he had an H. I bred him pretty hard and we had a whole lot of H's that came in and the H is a really, really good allele. And uh, so we, you know, we started working with that and um, I mean, the, the results so far have been awesome. We're start we've been harvesting these original animals the last few years mm-hmm. and uh the GGs on those properties that, cause I mean, so I'm still producing GGs, you know, at that time yet, I'm not anymore, but at that time it was, you know, the GG animals that we would put out on the property would, they were coming back positive at a pretty high rate, maybe 45%, let's say, uh, within, you know, three to 400 days of being on the property, probably about okay. 400 days. Yep. And uh, anything that had a single resistant allele, I think I've killed 34 of them so far and only one has tested positive. Mm. So the GGs are about 43% and single markers are 3%. Yeah. So um, we're, we're, we know we're on the right track. So when you, um, when you look at that and obviously you know, your numbers, right? So like you put that on graph, it's just like positive, 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 and then it breaks right? You, you, you break the disease and you're seeing that prevalence rate, just plummet down. Right. Um, you think that continues over time as we like just continue to introduce 
really, you know, not, uh, low susceptible genetics in and just breed again and again and again. That trend's going to continue, I assume. I would think so. And and to be honest with you, I think my the animals are going to keep getting more resistant. You know, they're they're going from single markers. Like I've never had a double marker deer test positive, and I've never had an animal with a 95H test positive to this gotcha. point. Cool. So hey, we're gonna we're gonna get more and more resistant. So those numbers are gonna those animals are gonna be stronger. Um, as you know, I incorporate Chris Seabury's work into the herd. I think we're gonna make them even more resistant. There is, you know, even before Chris Seabury came about, I was working with Dr. Haley and I said to Dr. Haley, we had a buck. Now keep in mind my GGs are coming back positive about 70%. And I had a buck, and this is at two years of age, probably even three. I had a buck that was like five and a half, six years old. GG lived amongst CWD positive animals his whole life, hmm. came back negative. And I said to Dr. Haley, I said, there's something more to this animal right here. So we got to figure it out. What else is he? And I haven't, we haven't done the Chris, Chris's test on that animal. I mean, it's, I probably still have some, some sort of you know, tissue somewhere at Haley's, sure. but um, there's something about some of those animals. And I assume that one has a pretty darn good GEBV would be my guess. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think um, with what we're doing, the way we're breeding, the way we're creating animals, um, I think it may be possible. We'll, we'll know in about five years whether you can create animals that don't get CWD even when exposed. I wonder what, uh, I mean, obviously you have a, you know, you got a, a, a positive facility that had tremendous environmental exposure, right? Yeah. So you got the, it's controlled, obviously there's a fence, but like you have the testing grounds. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, uh, what do you think, like, does a deer need to live for uh, 10 years to be considered immune or resistant or like what i mean how do you kind of look at that because like i have my own thoughts like we look at yeah you know animals i guess more specifically in the wild and you know the average age of a, a deer shot here in pennsylvania is one and a half right. so like if, if a if a buck or a doe makes it to like four years old like seems like a pretty good life to me right yeah. so what does that i mean what does that look like you think yeah, I think so. I think the normal life expectancy for a deer is probably three or four years. And if you can get like, so what we started doing with our testing is we started, like we track how many days are in these, this positive facility or positive facilities and their genotype and whether, whether they're coming back lymph node positive, or what level positive they are. Um, and I think if you can get deer and every year we push it, you know, so we're like, okay, the first year we want to test them after a year. Now we're going to test the bunch of this year that have been there for two years. And we're going to test a bunch that have been there for three years. And yeah, eventually we'd let, you know, I mean, I don't like to have a lot of old animals that are four, five, and six. Yeah. So I, I, I would prefer not to see if an animal can go 10 years. But you know what? We may push and see if we can have an, an HH with a very negative uh, score. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll see if he can go six or seven years. And I've got the, you know, the perfect facility for research and, and, and have been working with Dr. Haley. And, and now I have, I've had numerous conversations with Dr. Seabury. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're doing some testing there as well. But yeah, I think you're, to, to your point, if you could get 99% of the animals to not get CWD after three or four years of exposure, you pretty much almost eliminate the disease. You know, I actually think it's lower than that personally. Yeah. I, I, but like, that's, that's like a home run of epic proportions, right? right? Yeah. I think it's probably, um, 
I think it's probably, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the probabilities are, but I bet you it's more like 85%. Yeah. Um, if I had to guess, you know, if you look at that scrapies program, like that certainly seems to be a success. And I, I think they're 80, 85% with their kind of elimination models or something like that. Um, I just wonder how the, you know, like the public perception of like, what is resistant and how long should a deer live and, and those oh. kinds of things. And we're going to find that out because yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that there's tons of positive merit to uh, these various technologies and like there's no better people to implement them than than us right right of course yeah, you're ahead of, you're ahead of the curve and and that's yeah. why I, I like talking to you because like this is the real world like you're, you're watching it firsthand yeah there's no doubt and the thing about it what we got to keep in mind is like a resistant animal in my herd how resistant does it have to be with the amount of exposure like you said there's a fair amount of contamination there um I may need a little bit more resistant animal than you're going to need. I mean, if you if you had all your deer single marker with a you know a, a score below the cutoff, um, you may never have to worry about getting CWD. Where, um, and that's probably more like a wild setting. Now, if you're in the hot zone of you know PA or Wisconsin where they're yeah. coming back at a high rate, you know those animals there are going to have to you know probably have to be more resistant. But imagine if you had them that you know they you could probably just about eliminate the disease i i think yeah i know i've heard i've heard uh i've heard dr seabury kind of explain it like um you know if the if the high susceptibility animals are gone and there's only low susceptibility animals left and the disease presents itself those animals don't replicate the prion right it's their it's their ability not to do that and right. the disease just doesn't have anywhere to go. It can't do anything. Right. There's yeah, no host. Yep. And 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 I think that that's important to note too that it's not only and you kind you kind of had mentioned it, but in a more nuanced way, like it's really important to eliminate the high susceptibility ones. For sure. Not just get the resistant ones because right. those are consistently challenged if you have lesser animals around. So right. get rid of them bad ones. Um, yeah. What so. You have these, you've been working on the, you know, the kind of the single and double allele right. uh, breeding, that that type of technology. And um, Dr. Seabury comes out with his, you know, genomic analysis. So right. what do you, what do you do with your animals then? You have all this work that you've already put in, yep. you know, these markers, do you, do you right. test everybody again? Yeah. So yeah, I've spent, I don't know how many thousands of dollars testing animals. Yeah. But yeah. So Right. Initially, the work with Haley, we've created the single or the different alleles, and and our, we're still doing that test, and we're now in the process of saying, okay, like, let's see how resistant the K is, how resistant the NES is, how you know we're seeing where which which allele we think is the best. But then when Seabury came about, I mean, I had, I don't know, a couple hundred samples in uh, Nadar, um, you know, in June before he, you know, and I didn't get my results back. I think until September, um, I pretty much tested every one of my does. Uh, and then once I figured it out, I'm like, okay, I got some good animals here. Mm. Um, all right, I need to test all these bucks because I was still at the point where I'm only going to breed with double marker. So I tested all my double marker bucks that I, that came from deer that had a reasonable um, score. Um, and I found out I have some hammers, you know, some negative 0.30 or better, negative mm. 0.25 or better double markers. 
um, big deer, like 180 plus yearlings. Um, I think I had four of them between 180 and 270 plus score wise um, as yearlings that were double marker and had a Seabury score of negative 0.25 or better. Um, so I, I had been breeding for the alleles, but I happened to obviously get lucky and get some animals that have some great um, GEBB scores. Um, so um, I think last year was the first year we were able to breed for those scores. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I might've used 15 bucks on my farm. And I think 14 of the 15 were below the cutoff and um, double marker. I had awesome. one buck that I just needed one more buck. And I, he was a beautiful 220 inch three-year-old typical double marker HS. And he was just a, just slightly positive. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to just let him clean up a few deer. But um, so now looking at my fawns this year, knowing that everyone was double marker buck, bred to single and double marker does, um, all of, I think my average score on the my buck's input was about a negative 0.23, negative 0.24. Um, I'm going to have a whole lot of double marker buck fawns this year that are going to be negative 0.1 to negative 0.3, negative 0.35, something like that probably, you know. So, but I've been tracking, you know, the genetics and, and you know, I mean, I'm breeding with bucks that I don't know what their score is, but I know what their offspring score is. So I'm like, okay, it came from you, you know, so, I, you know, just mathematically just figuring out which deer to breed with. Um, so I had, uh, I don't run near the numbers you do, but I, I did have a, it wasn't necessarily a hard time accepting the results, but I, when I saw them, I couldn't unsee them. And I've right. said this a couple of times, right? So, you know, you have this idea of, of breeding certain deer that you really, really like antlers, bodies, production, the whole thing. Right. And I, I feel like I'm in, uh, I feel like I'm in a bad movie where somebody's getting ready to quit an office job and they just throw their papers all over. Right. Um, how did you, how did you, um, how'd you kind of like, interpret that data like when you saw it like where you was there some frustrating i'm sure there were some frustrating things that you right. saw like man i really wish that buck would have been something right. i could use or i thought that doe line was different um and then where does that lead you to today have you just kind of washed your hands of that and you're just purely taking this analytical approach at this point so yeah i bred with a, a couple bucks a few years back they were double marker and their scores were probably like negative 0.16 or I'm sorry positive 0.16 so not good I had a lot of animals out of that yeah. and to be honest with you I had a lot of gigantic antlered animals out of mm -hmm. them same lines so you sit back and go oh boy you know frustrating I mean I had the one buck um I had 20 yearlings one year I think that were over 200 inches out of them I mean that's all <laughs> four of them were over 300 inches oh my so, gosh and they're and they're they're three-year-olds now but so that being said I have a lot of does out of that line and some other lines and half my herd was really good scores half my herd was not so good scores but i also have semen in the tank from some bucks that are some real hammers mm -hmm. you know so i'm like okay i've got this doe i've got you know, i can think of a doe right now she's a, a positive 0 0.30 but she's an hg well i bred her to some bucks that are probably negative 0.40 you know type things and um so i if i 
what I, if I had a real powerful doe, I just made sure, and she didn't have a good score. Um, I just made sure I had a really good buck that, you know, if, if I take a negative point, say four, two, and breed it to a positive point two oh, probably a 90% chance I'm going to end up, you know, better than the cutoff. Yep. That's what I'm seeing so far. So I was, I'm not, I wasn't throwing away any of my deer based on bad scores yet. I'm, you know, I'm still building my double alleles and all that, but I've got some really powerful does and I just, I just found the best bucks, you know, to compliment them. And the buck I've got that, that I've been breeding a lot has got a great score. He's a great buck. Um, it produces really well. So I can take some of my real powerhouse does that I, I need to keep that female line going and breed them to just make sure I breed them to those type of bucks. Do you, so, um, do you think that, um, kind of once we'll say like the dust settles, right? Cause this is still, at least to me, it's very, very new, right? We're only call it a year or two in you're a little right. deeper on your allele stuff. Um, do you think you'll get to a point where you, uh, re reintroduce kind of concentrated breeding where you're really like tailor focused on, you know, however many bucks, but like a large percentage get bred to just a very select number of deer, much like call it late nineties, early two thousands breeding with you right. know, a large percentage being bred to, you know, a pretty boy or, or a little boomer in those variations. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think so. I, I mean, I, I've also created enough. One of my things I'm doing right now is just to make sure I'm creating a lot of breeding options. The hardest part for me going forward or in the past was breeding for this. I just didn't have that many options. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, in a farm my size, you need six or eight live breeding bucks. You need six or eight cleanup bucks. Um, so you get, you got 15 bucks you need a year. And I might only had you know, 18 bucks that I would genetically choose that had the resistance I wanted, you know, 20. So I was breeding with some bucks that maybe weren't the caliber I wanted, but I'm okay with that because I need bucks that are 180 to 200 inches in my hunting ranch as well. So mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say that I bred with any bad bucks, but um, we, we've bred with a lot of different bucks in, in some different lines. And, and I, I'm not really in a, the like tight line breeding. Um, so I don't mind having a little diversity and breeding with a lot of different bucks. I mean, I'll AI probably to three or four, five main bucks each year, and then I'll I'll clean up with a variety. But uh, but like now, next year I'm gonna have like in the past. I'll be honest with you. I've had I've had 250 inch, 300 inch yearlings that were drop dead gorgeous that I couldn't breed with, hmm. and I, instead I bred with a 130 or 140 inch yearling. But if you, I think if we all do our, our numbers and we keep our records, we understand too that, yeah, that 140 yearling was probably bred pretty good. So there's enough g genetics in there that it's not necessarily going to produce bad. Um, so I've, I've done a little bit of that, but now I'm getting to the point where I'll have 50 bucks on the farm. There'll be double marker and probably be low Seabury's cutoff by next yeah. year. And so I'll have options. Right. So at this point, genetic diversity is important like you sure. you're yeah. trying to build that you want yeah. you want selection right that's, but, if that's you, but if you pop a, a negative five five hs he's gonna breed a lot of deer for sure yeah okay yeah. gotcha yeah, I, yeah. i'm i'm, I'm kind of yeah. in that same boat like when when it when it's there it's game on yeah I, I had two bucks negative three zero negative three two 
I think 307 and 317 exactly. And one was HH, one was HS. I mean, they got hit. They get a lot of dose. I yeah, collect yeah. semen on them. And, they, and yeah, there'll be their father. I bred with a lot too, you know, so there, there'll be a, for sure. And that being said though, then you got to find that outcross. That's a negative, maybe it's a negative 0.30. You know, our, our numbers are, are going to go up. We're going to, you know, we're going to find more and more of these deer as people start breeding for it two, three years from now, we're going to have a lot of choices, you know, a lot yeah, more. And as people start testing more, right? Like we're still like, we're not even 365 into this thing. I think right. the last count I had was two months ago. So no fawns from this year, we are already at 16,000. So, yeah. you know, they get 25,000 fawns over there at Nadar. I know there's some grant dollars, you know, in your state. I know there's some in our state. Um, people are going to take advantage of that. And we're, you know, there's going to be, we're going to have 30,000 deer for sure that get tested, you know, this year. So there's going to be, I'm assuming there's going to be some stuff. They'll just, it's going to right. keep popping up, popping up, popping up, right. which yeah. is good. Cause I'm up, I'm looking, you know, like I'm, I'm always kind of like, Hey, where, where's the, where's the stuff at? So, yeah, I'm, I'm always, anytime someone posts a score with the, with a genotype, I'm always interested. I'm always looking, you know, and I think there's a lot of people that are, so I think, you know, not that, you know, if you want to make some money selling semen, you know, you're going to have, there's a lot of people that are looking in. And if you're not looking, here's what I've tell, told people. I'm like, CWD is real. And you're, we're all one test away and we're all seeing some of our friends getting hit yeah. here and there and everywhere else. There's enough great bucks out there that have either a good score or a resistant allele or two resistant alleles that you don't like i can tell you i have not sacrificed one bit in antler quality by breeding for resistance for the last five years i will have my best group of three-year-olds and two-year-olds probably yearlings um that we've had in a long 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 time so it's like you don't have to sacrifice antler quality and genetics and from that standpoint just to breed for cwd resistant deer and if you can get your herd to where they're all resistant to a point and get rid of those GGs, that's like the best insurance you can have to not be in that next guy that gets hit. Do you, do you think obviously with, you know, dealing with CWD, you've had to deal with regulators, right? Like that's just, you, you got to deal with your department of ag there yeah. uh, or ag and what is it? Animal health. I, what do they call yeah. it in your state? Yeah. Right. So um do you think like th they are obviously they're looking at this stuff they find it interesting you're obviously sharing numbers with them saying here's the data um positive reactions from them yeah yeah like, for they're, sure. they're they're animal people like they right. they can certainly appreciate this yeah i think they realize that if there is a solution to cwd it's going to be found in a game farm and um the people that I work with, the Department of Ag, have. When I met, I was it was Dr. McGraw at the time was our state vet, and I went into him and when I right after I met Barry Dyer and I put my plan together and I said, "Here's what I'm going to do," and he was 100% on board and said, "I think you're doing the best thing you can do," and and so we've been sharing data back since 2017, 2018, 2019, and and they know where my program's going and, and we're seeing the results and. And anytime if a deer tests positive, they will, you know, hey, what's the genotype on that one? What's, you know, and uh, we know, like I said, they're, they're 100% behind 
what we're doing because I think they realize that the solution is there and it's just a matter of us getting to that point. Um, luckily for me, I, I do have the hunting ranches and my own breeding. So I'm not, you know, I know we've had some issues where if you don't have a hunting ranch and you're, you know, trying to move animals across the state and all that stuff, all my stuff is really, really closely located. I think we're all within 10 miles as a crow flies or so. Oh. So it's all in a little pocket of area, but so yeah, we, we've been able to, to do the research that's needed. And we've, there's a lot of things that have come out of it and a lot of positives. And, and I mean, I've had talk with, you know, some DNR guys and they're like, man, if you can, if you can figure out how to beat this, you know, we need to bring you to the table and, and we got to figure out how to beat this in our hot zone. And, and, you know, and I don't know if it, I mean, that's up to them. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to help anything. Like I said, we started this thing by saying we're a hunter first, you know, and yeah. I love to hunt and, and anything I can do to help deer anywhere, we're going to do it. So let's, yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Good. I, I, I think it's, um, I think it's important to understand that the, you know, that the regulators are keeping an eye on this and they, 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 they want us to succeed. They're not, they're not here to, um, you know, encourage failure. They want to encourage success and, um, that, that we need to, we need to keep that in mind because I, I do think, I don't know if, I don't know if the testing will ever be, I don't want to say ever, but I don't know if it's going to be mandated, but I, I do think that there will be a program developed, around it for certain commerce opportunities right i think that that will happen nationally that's my guess when that happens i I don't know but um you know seeing the support for it and and you know just hearing hearing different um you know things from like dr seabury when i was talking to him here you know a month ago about his his new paper uh genotyping by environment and some of the things he was finding and then you know hearing some of your results um, you know, on your ranches and stuff like everything's going in the right direction and, and those things can't be ignored. So that's all, that's all good stuff. Right. Right. Um, so I, I have, I kind of, I have a note down here and you had mentioned, you know, having 15, like 15 breeder bucks, you know, needing 15 breeder bucks or, you know, six to eight and then some backups. Um, do you have kind of a line in the sand that you've drawn? um with the gbv for for your herd outside of a a flyer um buck like are you at minus two two five three like what 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 have you kind of said like for this year i'm gonna do this next year this is what i'm gonna do and and so forth. so i think i uh of the say 15 bucks i've got picked out to breed this year i think 14 of them have gbvs below the sea berries cutoff Okay. 0.056 or whatever yep. it is. Yep. Um, I've got one that's a, what is he, an HS. He's a tip, very typical yearling. That's probably 170 inches. And he's just slightly positive. And I could, I like the fact that he's an HS. I've got, I've got some HKs and, and different ones that are negative 0.12 that I'll probably breed with this HS ahead of that time. So I, I mean, if I can, I will breed with an HS before I'll breed with a K. I think the K is the, the, of the alleles is the third in line. Mm-hmm. I personally think the H might be the best. Um, from what I'm seeing on my farm, the S I think is, you know, right there. Um, so I'll breed with an HS that's, you know, got a slightly worse GBV than, than you know, a HK, let's say, or, a, you know, and, and that's just the way I do it. But yeah, 
I would say most of mine are going to be point one, negative point one or better. Gotcha. Um, if uh, you know, obviously, you have the most data on the on the alleles, right? Um, if if you find that the like the combination of having like really solid GBVs with perhaps a um, you know a single marker, not not that you're gonna that's not gonna happen too much longer because you're gonna be at double markers. But right. if you if you see that the influence from the GBV is is kind of outweighing um, like the H's in in this case, uh, yeah. we start to make a transition, or are you just trying to maybe keep that um diversity of uh strain because i know seabury has talked about uh right. strain strain selection in the in the genetics yeah. a little bit yeah i know we're not quite there yet but i was just curious your thoughts right. yeah so i'll uh i'll keep the diversity between the h's the s and the k and have a you know but i'm gonna get rid of the g even the single markers i've i've got a couple bucks right now that are h g or g s that are just, I think they got like negative 0.20, negative 0.16 type, and I won't breed with them. I would rather breed with an HS or SS that's got a negative 0.05 um, versus a uh, one with a better Seabury, you know, score on this yeah. test. I, that's just my my biggest thing, and I can just tell you, like the Gs in in my herd are, it's just bad. They're just bad, and I have to you have to get rid of them. And I don't know. I like the way Seabury does the scores. I personally think that um, maybe there's an underemphasis on the alleles and the importance in them. Like, I think I've heard like it's only 5% or it's only 7%. I personally, just having seen this for a while, I think it's greater than that. Hmm. But um, that's just my opinion. Um, I haven't done enough work with the Seabury's data to, to, yep. to say that. I, um, so I think over time, um, over time, I'll have all double markers, so that won't be an issue. And then, then it's just gonna be a matter of like when I talked to Nick Haley, you know, he told me, "Hey, get together with Dr. Seabury and let's and work on that because what I've done with you, we can only go so far. Once they're all double markers, they're double markers. Yeah. No, yeah. Then it's just a matter of like, okay, figuring out which alleles are the best, moving a little bit towards that, and a little bit away from you know maybe the K it is or whatever. But then, yeah, it's uh, this the the scores will then be be important and i i think knowing what i have in my herd i think a point negative 0.50 isn't that far away i mean mm. having it's kind of like breeding deer for antlers you know dad's a 200 mom came from a 200 but somehow you got a 300 in there mm -hmm. you know, i took it i took a um a positive 0.10 and i bred it to a positive 0.02 and i end up getting a negative 0.1 some for some reason it just it it, it got all the good stuff just like we've seen in, in all our antlers that we've seen over the years. So, mm -hmm. so there's going to be some of that stuff. We're going to breed a negative 0.3 to a negative 0.3, and we're going to end up with a negative 0.4 or 5, you know. So yep. um, we're going to get there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I look forward to that. I think it'll be, I think, you know, the next kind of big um, realization on industry level is going to be the um, the inheritance or the jump in gbv from parents known parents to fawns right because everybody's kind of we're all on our first gen so yeah. like i'm i'm waiting because like i have known does this year that are zero and they were bred to a good buck 
you know, you know, minus two, seven, and we're going to see how far we can push them. And of course, like there's going to be a a ton of fawns that get tested. So we're going to find out kind of what that max inheritance is. And, and then people can even make better decisions. Like how far can I move one generation? Not that it's consistent every time, but like, there's going to be a baseline that's built off that, which is exciting. Yeah. And so I, I've tested over 400 animals so far on, on Seabury. So I've got, I know the parents the, of most of my fawns. I know I've seen as much as a, I think, a negative 0.19 improvement of the parents average. So that's a lot. Um, yeah. I that's think, just one generation, right? That's just one generation. So um, I think I, I want to say about 7% of the animals, the fawns I tested out of known parents improved by negative 0.10 or better. So, I mean, that's not bad. I think, you know, a lot of them are negative 0.05 to negative 0.1, you know. Um, So I had it broken all down in how much improvement I was getting. And and yeah, so maybe one out of 14 animals, you're going to get a negative 0.1 or better um, improvement. So that being said, if you can have a whole bunch of them where the parents average is maybe a negative 0.2 or negative 0.25, you're going to get, you know, your share of negative 0.35s. That's also, uh, I think what you're saying is it was also unknown. You weren't purposefully doing that, right? So you you knew the parents and you got yeah. the fawns, but like they weren't bred for the GBD. They, they weren't bred for it. No, right. I, so, so yeah. you're going to put a minus three, two in one of those zeros and they're going to go up to two, five, yeah. minus two, five or something right. like that. Right. That's exactly. possible anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, you know what? When I made my crosses this last year, I knew the GBVs on my bucks and, mm. and I did all my does. So I knew, let's say, what the parent average was. Right. You know, so I, I, uh, I would anticipate, you know, one out of 14 of them will improve by I gotcha. one, okay. you know, at this point, that type of thing. But yeah, I, so that's, I mean, that's kind of exciting where, you know, I, like, I think I had to figure it out where if they followed the parents average about 95% of them would be in the negatives or below the cutoff or something like that. You know, you're going to awesome. get players both ways. You know, you're going to get one that you're going to breed and you go, dang, that was positive <laughs> 0.15. So I really yeah. struck out on that one, but yeah, that's the way it is with antlers too. I think that's good to know. And it's, you know, when you look at that statics, it's exciting for those that are kind of sitting on the fence or, or just kind of starting to dabble in it and say, look, like all is not lost, right? You just, it's important to at least do the testing. So, you know, and then you can make more informed decisions from there. Um, Right. That's the starting place, right? Like, right. I've been trying to encourage as many people, at least just to, to test. And of course we're, we're trying to, we're trying to subsidize that through our grant dollars, which makes it a lot easier on, on people from a financial standpoint. Um, even if you're not comfortable with the technology or you don't understand it, it doesn't matter. Right. You're going to get your parentage done and have somebody else pay yeah. for it. And just look at the data that comes back. Right. You know, you think about it, we're all, we all have to cut deer every year. So it's like, if you can base your decisions on the genotype and the GBVs, um, that's a pretty important thing. You know, I mean, we're all going to cut a bunch of our fawns. We just don't have room for them in our breeding. You got some chaos, some chaos back there. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to have to let them outside here real quick. Um, But yeah, if you got a reason to keep them or a reason to cut them, but the more you know about your deer, that gives you the reason, right? So I would, I would test everything I could test and, and find out what the genotype is, find out what the score is, you know, what the mom is at the pedigree, um, why not? 
Greg, I appreciate the conversation and I appreciate the work that you're, you're, you have done and that you are doing on this. And, um, I'd like to have you come back on after you get all your fawn results from this year, maybe after hunting season, we can, we can do a winter session and, uh, have another chat about this. Um, I, I know, I know you got a, a lot of, uh, a lot of different things going on as far as breedings and, uh, all the things that are going on this fall. But, uh, I, again, I, I appreciate you having you on. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And we can, we can definitely do this again. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.